this week's Parsha, Parsha Bayekel, has a bunch of really cool different pieces. But what I want to talk about is something so iconic that it has even sparked Hollywood uh, movies that topped the charts, right? So you go back to 1981. The film is Raiders of the Lost Ark. I just love that that's an old movie to you. <laughs> well, wait, wait, wait. That, that, is, that, is, that is definitionally an old movie. We're talking, that's a 40-year-old film. Yes, For some okay, of us, yeah. that's not I, I agree, Jody. <laughs> I, I'm not saying it's an irrelevant film. I'll give you that. It is still up. It's still hip and now, but though I think uh, Ford might have a few other thoughts on it. But um, uh, so 1981, I won't even get into what year I was born. That will now sequitur us way off chart. Uh, but 1981, the film is Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anyone familiar with the film, right? It goes off in some pretty interesting ways about this wild adventure versus the Nazis to recover the Ark of the Covenant. And that goes back to this week's portion. This week is where we talk about a little bit of this Ark of the Covenant, right? Uh, the Ark, like, the, like all the Mishkan furnishings, was built to be very portable. And ultimately, somewhere along the line, it seems to have gone astray. And this has sparked speculation for generations, which in itself is something really wild, something that I think is worth kind of noting that a, a piece of our text has literally kept people speculating and searching and talking for hundreds of years, which is really amazing. But the Ark of the Covenant, where is it? And that's the premise of the Indiana Jones film, as well as a lot of Talmudic discussion about the notion of uh, serving God and, and sanctity and all these pieces. And so the first thing I want to talk about is a piece from Mishnah. It's Yoma 5.2. And don't worry, I will have some things to share later that we can, we can look at. But Yoma 5.2 teaches that the Ark was already missing by the start of the second temple period. The rabbis explained that in place of the ark, the Holy of Holies in the second temple contained a rock that dated all the way back to David and Samuel. Since there is no ark, which the high priest can place the pan of the incense on Yom Kippur, he would instead place it on this rock. It was though in the first temple that there was actually an Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments inside. And then what happens to that Ark becomes a grand debate, a grand debate inside of Talmud, a grand debate inside of larger society. In fact, we'll look at it later. There are even articles in which certain churches in different areas claim they still have the Ark of the Covenant. It is something that has spread like wildfire. The rabbis discuss the whereabouts in their own thoughts, though, in the sixth chapter of a book called Shkalim, a Talmudic tractate that's named for the half-shekel donation that we read about in this week's portion. So if you remember, there's been other weeks in which we talk about tax and due and cost um, for individuals, and there's certain taxes that are fixed, regardless of what kind of wealth you have. That's the half shekel tax that goes to the temple. So in the portion that's talking about all of that half shekel taxing, they read about, they offer three opinions on where the ark could be. 
So let's play a game for a minute. Who thinks they have an idea? You're Torah scholars. You study every week. You understand the way the rabbis like to weave and bend and speculate and kind of dream. Where do you think the rabbis say the Ark of the Covenant is? In Babylon. Okay. Nice. That's a good spot. Where else? In the ruins of the temple. Okay. Ruins of the temple. Very nice. These are good ideas. Let's keep going. Carol says in your heart. Okay. Ooh, oh, interesting. Yeah. All right. They didn't Anyone say else? Miami Beach, not Miami Beach. <laughs> uh, what about the modern approach? It's, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark is in an army warehouse never to be seen again. Yeah. Yep. Spielberg definitely had an influence on this week's Torah portion. Um, all right. These are some pretty good ideas. So now let me share with you a little bit of where it goes. The first is the thinker Raish Lakish who argues that the Ark was hidden in a tunnel under the Holy of Holies. And he bases this argument on a verse from the first book of Kings. So now we're into a book of our prophets in which it says, the poles of the Ark are described as being in the same place to this day, to this day. And the rabbis understand that as referencing to all time, suggesting that the Ark is sequestered somehow in that place. And that regardless of when you read it, because it says to this day, it must be there. And the rabbis go further and explain the reason the ark was not moved was on account of King Josiah, the king of Judah in the seventh century BCE, who was dismayed to discover the prophecy at the end of Deuteronomy. At the end of Deuteronomy, there's a line that says, God will drive you and the king you have set over you to a nation unknown to you and your fathers, while you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. You're going to get pushed out of your land. You're going to end up in a place with idolatry. And Josiah feared that if the ark was to go into exile with the people, the people would engage in idolatry and they would forsake the ark. So instead, he hid it in the place. And according to that understanding, the sanctity of the ark, therefore, is inherently tied to the place that it's located. So let's keep track of that. Option one, Josiah leaves it in the temple. It is connected still to this day to the space in Zion because it is rooted in Torah that says the Ten Commandments contained in the ark are meant to come forth from Zion. Option one, hiding in Israel. In contrast to option one, we have option two. Rabbi Eliezer argues that the Ark was in fact exiled to Babylonia. Ding, 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 Pam, nice job. Along with the Jewish people who brought it with them. And he bases the argument on a verse from the second book of Kings, in which Isaiah prophesied about the exile to King Hezekiah, stating, behold, the days are coming when all that is your house all that which your father has stored up to this day, all of that shall be carried to Babylonia. No item shall be left. Now, the term for item in that line is dever, understood to reference the Ten Commandments, aseret hadibrot. So, and indeed, by the time of the Talmud, the sages, Babylonia had become what? A bastion of Jewish learning. It was a beautiful place for Judaism. It had become the center of Torah. The yeshivot rivaled anything that had come out of the land of Israel. So according to Rabbi Eliezer's view, the sanctity is not rooted 
in a centralized location, but instead the Jewish people carry Torah with them wherever they study it. That's another beautiful interpretation. So now we're at two. We're at the Torah that the Ark is rooted in Zion, keeping Zion, Jerusalem, as this pinnacle centerpiece of Judaism. And the idea that what is stored and important to us must come with us. The story, in, in my opinion, of so many of the ways in which refugees can build again. They can start anew. They can bring what matters with them. It's not the place. It's the people. Are you guys ready for the third option? The third option about the whereabouts is contained in a piece of Mishnah on the same thing, Shkalim. So now we've jumped around a lot, reference. We've done a couple pieces of Talmud. We've looked at the different arguments here. And now in Mishnah, as a story about one of the priests who was once chopping wood for the altar in a side chamber of the temple, where he noticed that one of the paving stones, one of the stones was slightly higher than the rest. This is a priest who is not an elevated priest. This is the priest who's cutting the wood. Okay, he's he's a priest intern. And he's off to the side and he's chopping the wood and he notices this. And he wants to re- he went to report the discovery to the fellow priest, but he had not yet finished speaking when suddenly his soul departed from him. And they knew for sure that this was where the ark was hidden. Interesting. The priest, the one who had been relegated to just manual labor or chopping wood, nothing elevated or special, was someone who, if you remember from other weeks of Torah, the priests are actually judged like sacrifices. Those with physical blemishes actually didn't do as holy of jobs. It's a questionable piece of Torah that we can dive into another day. But this is a person whose blemishes prevented him from engaging in the more glory-driven pieces of his job, like sacrifice worship. He instead worked in the chamber of the temple. It was basically a wood storage room where it was just put. And so perhaps, perhaps this story is meant to teach that the holiness is not found in the Holy of Holies alone, but wherever we engage in divine service, even if that's just chopping wood on the peripheral. This too is Torah, since the wood for the altar was necessary to bring sacrifices and thus to draw people closer to God. Meaning, the third one, ding, 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 was the ark is in our hearts. It, the ark is in the place in which we give intentionality and focus to what we're learning. This is really interesting here. We're at three options. Stayed in place, move to the people, magical ark that appears when there's a divine and intense moment for you. Now, magical ark that appears in a divine intense moment might seem to some of you like a curveball in the first two options that are so logically driven about the history and notion of what happened to the Ark. But that's where I want to push us one step further. Why are the rabbis willing to take such a leap in this moment? Why are they willing to go from two logical approaches to faith and what we can see and not see? Does it weaken their argument to do that? Maybe because there's no more temple. Okay, so because there's no more temple, they have to have a third option, or maybe it's because they haven't seen the Ark in a long time, so they need to to create an option to connect to it. 
but but that's still logic driven. My question is, what does it do to the rabbi's arguments for them to have two time bound history focused arguments and one metaphysical faith filled approach? Hmm. What does that do? Covers all the bases. Okay. Who thinks it weakens their first two arguments? Barry, I see you raised your hand for a second. I just want to check. Are you? Yeah. Yeah, George. There's no evidence for the first two. The third one is faith. And uh, all three widens the appeal of the story. It appeals to more people. Okay. Interesting. Okay. It seems to be in line, too, with the uh, the notion uh, that's contained in the idea of no graven images. Uh, that uh, And it doesn't seem to be in conflict, then, with uh, the notion that there might be uh, an arc, an actual physical arc in one of these places. It's also in everybody's heart. Yeah. That's a good point. Susan. <laughs> I, I thought of when you argue with children, if we're the children of Israel, you say, okay, here's one logical explanation. Here's another logical explanation. But the bottom line is because I say it is. So, you know, the bottom line is faith. Okay. Faith. I like that. Who else has a thought? Yeah, Lisa. No, I, I think if something is hidden and you have to uh, find it in your heart, then it requires that you kind of continue to struggle for it. Whereas if you know the, the ark is sitting someplace, there's you know less of a sense of a connection to it or an interest in what it contains. Um, it's almost like this is a, a challenge to, to find it. Um, sort of like the Afikoman or something. To look for, you know, where is it? And it's a personal journey. I think that's beautiful. Uh, Lynn, I think I, I just saw your hand pop up. Yes. If it is in our hearts, in each of our hearts, then we are all responsible for the ark. We, we have to take responsibility for it. I like that. Barry. Well, I remember that in uh, as late as the 10th century, there were still uh, rabbis debating some unknown groups of people who uh, wanted to reestablish the third temple back in the 10th century already. So I'm guessing there were factions that wanted to have a physical place and a physical arc. And, and uh, they felt that the, the, the civilization would fall apart if they don't have something to look at. Uh, and, and, the, and eventually the, the, that, that political faction was defeated until the 19th century in Zionism. Uh, became uh, a movement again. But um, there was a strict notion that, you know, the the physical temple would be a mystical thing that comes out of heaven and nobody should uh, attempt to reestablish 
uh, Jewish sovereignty over the land of Israel or build a temple or anything like that. Yeah, that's the, the, the rabbis wanted the Jewish civilization to 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 move into something else that is more, you know, like acoustic, more flexible, and, and yet. Yeah. Thank you, David. I saw that you unmuted. Do you have something to share too, Rabbi? I, I, this is a little bit of a different approach, but you know we've spent so much time over the years <clears throat> learning about the specificity of how the ark was built and how God made sure that every detail was taken care of. But I've never heard as a discussion is why is it messy? Is it conceivable that God said, Jews, you fetch all the time. You never really do what I want. I'm taking this away and you don't deserve it. I've I just never heard any come. You haven't bridged any rabbinic discussion of why it's missing, given the fact that God made such an effort to make sure it was absolutely perfect. And we had Aaron and we had the Levites guarding it. And we had, you came in with your fire pan and it was the wrong fire pan. You were killed. This is something that had to have more people guarding it than any conceivable edifice at all. And yet it's gone. And we never talk about why it's gone. So I just thought I'd toss that in for a thought. So let's take that tangent for a bit. Let's take that tangent and let's run with it. Because here's the thing about the ark. If you recall what's inside the Ark, the, the, uh, the Ten Commandments, and then there's a rabbinic teaching that it's the, 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 the smash tablets and the regular tablets, uh, the oils to anoint the Messiah and Aaron's staff. There's actually, it's, it's a, I, I called it a, a holy cabinet. It's a tchotchke. It, you, you, you keep the things that have this meaning to your life, these little trinkets that maybe aren't actually valuable, but are valuable because they had importance to the story of who you are. That's the things that are supposed to be in the ark. But if you remember before that, to get those things, first Moses has to go up the mountain. And you remember just, was it last week, that the people don't do a great job of having faith in God as soon as the physical thing in front of them disappears. Moses is gone for a little too long and they flip out. They need physical reminders. And suddenly you have this beautiful golden box with these creatures on top and it stands out and it's beautiful and you're told to pray in its direction. And suddenly we've shifted the narrative from Moses being this slight placeholder for God that isn't really a comfortable thing in Judaism to a thing being a manifestation in some ways of God, which also is slightly problematic. And so when I work with students, I often take a piece of paper and I draw a box and I put a circle inside. It looks like this. I draw a box and I put a dot in the middle for those of you listening. And I tell people that that dot anywhere inside the square, that's us. And the walls of the square our physical reality, the things that we can experience on this planet. Where do you think I would draw God on this piece of paper? Outside the square. Well, that's cheating, Susan. I've done this project with you. That's the (laughs) only reason you know that. But yes, 
I would draw God outside the square and simply put God is everywhere. I'm not saying God isn't inside the physical manifestation of the world, but the dot is our vantage point. It's what we can see. And to an extent, those, the walls of the square, those are the boundaries, right? I just realized I don't have to do that here. I can do this here. You're going to be a little bit more embarrassed by my drawing, but here we go. This is our vantage point. God's out here. And what's Isn't important- God sitting on top of the square? Yeah, God can be on top. God can be on the side. God's all powerful. God chooses it. You can't tell God where to sit. But yes, you could say that God, if you're looking at the symbolism, would be on top. But I actually think it's better to think of the whole square, no matter what direction you look for your vantage point, no matter how much time you study and learn, no matter how critical and focused you are on the words, you are still blocked by the boundaries of reality. And it's not about discovering God. It's about getting as close as you can to discovering God. We know there's a block. You're never going to learn all of it. You can't. That's the world we live in. And so instead, we have to find things that connect us into divinity. And the ark served a really great role in that sense. But then it went missing. So either it went missing because God changed God's mind and says the people no longer can really have this thing, or it went missing because some form of humanity took too seriously the weight and gravitas of the thing. Or maybe that's why the rabbis are giving us three three options right now. Maybe that's why they're asking, is it still in the place or does it move with us? Or was this physical manifestation just something that the people needed at the time, but the ark is right here? They're asking these questions because we have to figure out how close is their relationship to the divine. But Rabbi, if God really is, in that sense, all-powerful, and he could take the ark away, he could also bring it back. So if it's missing, doesn't that force you to conclude that God wants it missing, and we're just temporizing and trying to find a rationale that we're not so bad as we might be described. But God, he could deliver tomorrow. He could be in the Palisade Shopping Center if God wanted it there. But he doesn't. Because if if, if it was in the Palisades, what about the Jews everywhere else? And the rabbinic period is a time of diaspora with Jews everywhere around the world. And so the problem with the ark in one place is where does that leave the rest of us? But Bert, the ark was in one place. And when, then we were, when, when most, well, when the center of Judaism was Israel, which it no right. longer is. Pause that thought. I, I want to say, I, Jody's got her hand up, her digital hand up. I want to make sure that we can call on her to share. And I want to keep these thoughts. We're going to kind of flow back through all of them. Okay. If we're to believe as We've been taught as Reconstructionists, we believe this is a, our Torah is a, just a book of stories that are there for us to figure out what is the meaning of this? Why are we given so much detail in building? Because we have to pay attention to the details of our life. It's what is the spirituality that we can apply today? So if we believe that, and I do, then um, 
there can be no physical evidence. Of course, there cannot be physical evidence because these are made up stories for moral and spiritual lessons. So that's what I think in our hearts. That's what it's taught. That's I'm going with door number three. Okay, you're going with door number three. Now, I will remind you of something really important in real estate. It's good to have more than one door. It's good to be able to say that our tradition doesn't actually limit us down to one of these perspectives. In fact, I could go as far as to say you can hold and learn the same thing from this lesson, whether you believe Torah to be the word of God, the word of people who experienced God, or a book of fables and lessons. Because here is one of the things that our tradition does correctly. It transforms. I always tell people there's a reason that the ultra-Orthodox look like they're in the 17th century. Because they were going along with the time until they stopped. This wasn't always a tradition of not moving forward. We did move forward. Otherwise, they'd be wearing leather sandals. And... and uh flaps and square, like they would be dressed completely differently if they had frozen time in the time of the temple, but they don't. Talmud wouldn't exist if we did. None of our rabbinic teachings would exist because rabbis were the creation, as Bert started to say, of the next iteration of our cultic faith, taking all the physical things and saying, you're B'Tselem Elohim, you're in the image of God. You have the mind and the soul to elevate and experience. We need to bridge all these moments of sacrificial worship, and we need to turn them into prayer, and we need to decentralize them so we can all have an individual experience with God. Story and fable, fact, secondhand account. It doesn't really matter in that sense if you're willing to recognize that the reason that we are here right now is because our tradition has always been willing to transform. Now, I know that that might not sound authentic if you're talking to someone else who sees their tradition as rigidity, but even their tradition did transform until it didn't. And so the question becomes, to go back to David's point, God can make it appear tomorrow. Could God solve hunger tomorrow? Could God take away all war tomorrow? We say at the end of our Kaddish every single week, God bring peace down to this earth. Can God do it? I think it, it, I think it has to shift the way we see the idea of an all-powerful God. I see an all-powerful God as a God who can sit in partnership with everyone at once. Because I don't know about the rest of you, but there's a limited amount of partners that I can have in a given moment. There's a limited amount of negotiation and working with others. God sits as an all-powerful partner to be a partner with every single human on this earth. Every single one of you have the ability to shape and shift. Every single one of you have the ability to do the Tukunulam, to do all these different things. So I think, and again, now we're getting into my philosophical view specifically. So you go to another rabbi, they might see that guy's ridiculous. But I say that the all-powerful piece of God is that God can balance all these relationships at once. God can be a partner for every one of us so that none of us have to feel alone when we're doing the work of making this world a better place. That in itself is quite impressive. Uh, I see Susan and Lisa, and I see some questions in the chat, and then we'll, we'll go around from there. Susan. My question is for 
probably much later or a different class, but what is the relationship of Talmud to Mishnah? That's a very simple one. Here we go. Torah happened. The rabbis are like, there's some stuff that is not written here. Let's talk about it. And they make six volumes of Mishnah. And the Mishnah is early, early, early. Then another set of rabbis from the next generation say, the Mishnah is missing a whole bunch of really good tangential arguments. And they write about Mishnah in the outskirts of the pieces, and they make it Talmud. So Gemara is Mishnah and Talmud together wrapped up as this rabbinic case law. But Mishnah comes first and then Talmud. Thank you. Yeah, Lisa. Uh, okay, so sort of, I'm wondering if this is sort of the reconstructionist view of things to sort of uh, look at it as God maybe took away the physical manifestation of of the ark because there's supposed to be this move forward from the literal to the conceptual. And so you take away the box and you say, now imagine a box um, and then imagine something outside the box um, so that we're almost forced we're forced to progress so that, you know, no, there's no more box. Is that sort of in line with the reconstructionist view? I actually think it's in line with more than just the reconstructionist view. That's in line with the rabbis thinking okay. the rabbis of, of all the rabbis. Talmud can't exist if speculation can't happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Prayer can't replace sacrifice until you're ready to say we don't have an altar. Now we have an altar of our hearts. Like all, all, what you're saying today, we might see gravitate to one side, but this is where we got to give all of Judaism some real credit. Judaism should have ceased to exist. Israelite cultic faith should have ceased to exist upon the destruction of the second temple. But a group said we can reconfigure all of it. We can have the faith in God that we can reconfigure all of this. And as long as we do it with authenticity and care, we are not being disrespectful to this notion of God. And that in itself, that ability to be nimble, that's what saved the religion and the tradition. So this is just another example of it. I think so. Okay. To an extent, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Judith. Thank you for the wonderful explanation of Torah, Talmud, and Mishnah. Where does Gematria figure in? Uh, Gematria is what happens when they got to bring math into it. Oh. It's, uh, it, so Gematria, honestly, look, and I apologize to anyone listening to the podcast because this has been a, a wild ride of different thoughts and non sequiturs, but what we're really getting to is the different ways that we can connect to our tradition. We can connect through cold read. We can connect through the reading of the interpretations of others. For some, we can connect by diving even deeper and looking for the hidden meaning that isn't in the text itself. And that's where we get things like gematria. Gematria says, take the letter, take the letters of that word, turn them into numbers, see what the number is, and does that number correlate to something else meaningful? It's where we get the idea that 18 becomes such a celebrated number in our tradition because chai equals 18 in gematria. Gematria was a chance to say, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, then we can't stop finding new ways to read and engage in the material. Right. It's it's honestly it's a it's another show of being nimble and creative and trying to connect with something deeper. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Rabbi. Any other yes. So I, I was thinking of uh, the Afikoman. You know, when the kids want to look for the Afikoman, 
they start looking individually, they team up together, they ask questions, they tear the house apart, and then they find it. They get their money and they move on. And to me, I'm not so sure we should find it. Uh, not the author Komen, but the, but the arc. Because to me, it goes back to the journey, the journey that we're doing, you know, to read, to analyze, discuss, pray, study, argue. Um, you know, we find it, you know, the game may be over. So, Look, I think that's, that's where I'm at with the square and the dot. Our whole lives are just moving closer to the end of the square, but, but I have no expectation, nor would I want to cross the line. I agree. The journey in itself is, is really fascinating and powerful. But I, I, what I want to kind of point out as well is that all of these things are connected back to one another, right? Uh, I was speaking with someone about the, the most basic difference between Christianity and Judaism. And I said, if you only gave me one sentence, one sentence to say the difference, it's that knowing the savior versus not knowing the savior changes ideologically changes the way you engage in the material, the unknown, knowing that you don't have an answer makes you keep seeking for an answer and being given an answer fundamentally changes your creativity, your exploration, your willingness to stretch and to think and to grow because now you have a boundary. And that boundary does contain your thoughts and contain your creativity. And so point blank, I mean, there's a lot of differences. There's a whole bunch of differences. It's a religious shift, but that is a fundamental difference that gets into the core of the sociological piece of our faith. Not having that answer. Yes. I think that I'm sort of coming around to Jody and Rick in the sense that maybe God actually did take away the ark to force us to on this never-ending quest to find God. And there is no certainty, but it's there metaphysically as opposed to a structure. And maybe that's even better. Maybe we should never, just as Rick says, maybe we should never find it, never find the ark. And we'll always be questing and trying to improve our life. Maybe God is the journey we take together. You bet, Bert. These are some great ideas. So let's go back to our three. What happened to the lost ark? Is it stuck in the holy of, under the Holy of Holies from King Josiah? Did it follow the sages to Babylonia? Or is it a magical ark that makes its presence known whenever we serve God? I like three. I love that you like it. What I'll say is we may never solve this mystery. We're not supposed to solve this mystery, but the mystery offers us a really, really important lesson in Torah. It gives us an ability to connect that I think if we didn't start with the tangible piece of where is the ark, we couldn't get to, which is Torah is a richness and a multivalence to it. We associate Torah with fixed places like a sanctuary. We associate Torah with our travel when we discover something new or we go and do something. And we associate Torah in moments where we engage with divinity. In moments where we do something so good that we know we can feel it in our souls that we are doing something holy. 
I think the fact that all of that is Torah, all of that is divine connection, all of that uh, ability to uplift our tradition. When we say the light of Torah, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that you're not closing any door to it, that maybe it's in one spot, maybe it's in the other, maybe it lives in all of them. We went over Mishnah and Talmud, Gematria. We didn't even get into the Kabbalist text of Zohar, but all of this is Torah if it helps us to wrestle and engage with our text. And if something can be as nimble as to be a proper noun and a metaphorical noun, I don't even know if that's a phrase, metaphorical now, but you understand where I'm coming from. If they can be both at once, then this idea of having to choose, the options are part of us, our engagement. They give our people an opportunity to really connect in a way that's comfortable to them and still to discover the truths that are important. Uh, Brent, your hand was up and Susan, your hand was up. Brent, your hand's down now. So I'm going to go with Susan first, but if you still have something to share, go ahead and just put your hand back up. I I just wanted to say, this is my travel size Torah. And I discovered on my last trip to Europe that it does not make it for some reason through the check. Every checkpoint I had, I had to stop and take my Torah out of my bag. I have no idea why, except I decided it was because it was a holy book. I don't know. It doesn't look like anything except a book to me. <laughs> and then you brought out, you but brought holiness in each of those spots. Necessary to explain it. Mark. There's something, uh, the, 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 the point that you're making, the point of view that you're making, I'm trying to, I'm trying to uh, um, understand and incorporate that. And the way that I'm thinking about it, and I wonder if this is something that, um, it makes some sense, is that it seems like a process of abstraction of the progressive movement away from concrete objects um, and uh, dealing with the concrete objects as though they contained the meaning, the essential aspect of, of what was involved, uh, and moving uh, uh, detail by detail away from those physical objects to something that is much more abstract, to something that is uh, an idea, something spiritual that is contained uh, within uh, within the individual rather than in a location. But it doesn't uh, doesn't at the same time obviate the importance of of the item itself as well, so that there is um, um, there's a whole series, whole series of things are relevant from concrete objects, the relevant spiritual meaning from concrete objects to uh, a spiritual or ideational aspect of things. And um, the more abstract, the more it is part of the individual, the more that more it is portable in a sense. Yeah. Anyone have any that, thoughts that, on that? Does that yeah, I, I was going to say this actually goes all the way back. It's, you know, we look at it in the 21st century as being somewhat recent, but the whole idea of moving away from the physical goes way, way back, even, even during, even in Torah, you know, don't, don't bow down to objects. And, uh, so I think this is part of the Jewish tradition, as Rabbi Sher was saying. 
So I see that Barry made a comment, and I just want to comment it really, really quickly. And Barry, I see your hand is up. Yes, we have certain ritual items. And this is actually the problem that the the early reformers in the Enlightenment period in Germany went through, which is saying, we don't need any of this stuff. We don't need kippah. We don't need a Torah. We don't need yarmulke. We don't, I mean, we don't need a talit. We don't need any of these things. We can just have it be intellectual and understand it in our hearts. And here's the thing. There is a difference between items that help elevate an experience inside of us and items that we put the experience into. The ark, the tablets, these things ran the risk of us not connecting to the spiritual idea of the divine. My mezuzah reminds me every time I walk in a door. My kippa reminds me every time I put it on. It reminds others every time they see it. I think there is an important shift between the items that elevate this transcendent experience and the items that actually halted the transcendent experience. And I think the arc being one that can't be done individually is that issue. I I think you can also see it as the centralized versus uh, personalized items. The arc is something that was shared your candlesticks are not, right? And yes, we have a Torah here, but there's also many Torahs and an ability to produce more Torahs. So I I think you guys are all onto something. I'm going to turn to Barry to share his thought as well. But I, I will say in response to you, Mark, I think, yes, that is the point to give us the opportunity to have our own personalized experience of elevation. That's why I said that God is a divine partner with all of us. But I don't think that means getting rid of all the tangible connections to that to that experience. I think those things serve a really important role as well. Barry. Uh, I see it more of a sort of a pendulum or a movement or a, a, the beating of a heart. When we see Jewish history uh, move towards more towards the intellectual Rambam, Rabbi Sadegaon, um, all these rationalists in the 10th, 11th, 12th century. And we didn't have Kabbalah Shabbat until much later uh, with all the objects. It's like a reaction. Mystic, Jewish mysticism, the Zohar, is like a reaction to the intellectualization of Judaism at those times. So, And we see the early reform movement with their uh, movement of the pendulum towards the intellectualized, the, the, the abstract, and and the reaction uh, to the other side of the concrete objects, and and I believe th- th- this there's a this sp- spherical motion that you have. We uh, we keep evolving um, uh, between those the beatings of the heart, the the abstract and the concrete, and and we always have to find ourselves where where do we want to put the pendulum now, and how does it. Uh, help our civilization move forward. Yeah. And I think some of you have heard me say before, I actually think Judaism is, the pendulum exists, but I think Judaism is actually finding the compromise between the two. You can't have Judaism with just your intellectualism because the ritual connects us, physically connects us. Um, but the at the same time, you need the intellectual to elevate the things that you're doing beyond just tasks. And so you actually need to find that balance. And so I want to kind of close us back together in this. Again, for all of you who are listening on the podcast, I hope you enjoyed what a wild ride it was from subject to subject. 
Um, as I as I said before, rabbinic tangents are one of the most fun parts of tech study to, to see where the conversation flows. There is always more than one door. The rabbis had an ability to just say, here's the ark is, but they don't. They play with it over a long period of time, giving us different opportunities and different ways to connect because that's the essence of our tradition. You will go through different doors. You will find what fits for you. And then God, as this all-powerful being, will be there to be a partner for where you are in that experience. And the fact that all of us get a chance to have that partnership with the divine, that that is something beautiful. That is something worth putting inside of the arc of our hearts. That is something worth celebrating. So thank you for riding this journey with me, for speculating, for showing Spielberg. I don't think he had it right uh, for all of the above. And I hope you all have a Shabbat Shalom.